Hi, welcome to Chatting to a Friend. I'm Katie Friend and in this podcast I'm chatting to incredible women about their life experiences and adventures as well as their thoughts on friendship, community, self-care, setting boundaries and how they keep healthy, happy and sane. Happy New Year and welcome to the first chatting to a friend for 2021. We are off to a flying start and the pun is fully intended with the RAF's second ever female fast jet pilot Mandy Hickson. Just think Top Gun with a British accent and you're bang on the money. What a brilliant chat with a really fun high-flying, high-energy, but super down-to-earth guest. We talk about her really phenomenal book, An Officer, Not a Gentleman. And yes, you may congratulate her on that brilliant title. It's absolutely inspired. And it talks all about her flying career, uh, from air training corps as a teenager, to her intense training, to three tours of Iraq, and flying a tornado as one of the very first women to go on a front line within the RAF. We also talk about, of all things, men's mental health, crying, which is a very healthy outlet for the stress bucket, as she calls it, um, being shot at by a surface-to-air missile while in Iraq, and her career post-RAF. And right at the end, we talk about the fabulous gift of brilliant friends when things are tough. Anyway, she was just brilliant, so fun. Um, just a quick note to say that this was recorded between lockdowns, so some of it might sound a bit odd saying when we were in lockdown, um, as a lot of the world is now back in lockdown. Just a little note. I really hope you enjoy it, and thank you to two really incredible reviewers this week. Thank you so much. Batchfish from the UK and Ursula also in the UK. I really, really appreciate the time. Thanks and enjoy. Hi Mandy, how are you today? I am very well, thanks Katie. How are you doing? Good, very well, thank you indeed. Looking out at the snow, which is nice. Oh, I'm so jealous. (laughs) (laughs) Does have its advantages of being in slight lockdown with a knee knee deep in snow. (laughs) Yeah, I I can imagine. I can imagine (laughs) schools like myself. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah, no, we're very lucky. Um, so I read your book, and it's absolutely brilliant. I um, one of the things I've loved so much about doing this podcast is I've got to read some incredible books of like just and I keep calling them girls old adventures which I never mean to sound in any way condescending but I just love that that they're just there's just so much in there yeah I have to say it's, it's exciting isn't it because there's been quite a few books written recently and it's sort of when you get to talk to all these different people as well it's fascinating how there are so many similarities to different people's stories as well absolutely and so much uh you know that you went through that you know, the, being the only woman, you know, I spoke to Dee Kafari, the round the world yachtswoman yeah. a few weeks ago, and she had the same sorts of similar-ish stories, just that, you know, how on earth could a woman do this? What are the, you know, what are you doing here? It's it's not really your world. Yeah, which is such a shame, isn't it, that, that we're still having those sorts of conversations now. It's shocking, really. And so talk us through a little about a bit your route to becoming a, the second Tornado GR4 pilot in the RAF? Um, So um, at the age of about 14, I joined the Air Training Corps um, on the first day that it opened its doors to girls, which was quite exciting. And I went along Mm. hilariously because my mum suggested it might be an opportunity to meet some boys. Uh, And I went to an (laughs) all-girls school, so you've just got to take it for what it is. Um, And I also was a little bit of a classic sort of tomboy, um, loved sort of, you know, running around outside. I was always, you know, climbing trees and that side of things. So I loved adventure and the air training corps at the time seemed to tick many of those different boxes for me. And while I was there, I flew and suddenly it was almost like I'd flicked a switch and it was there suddenly this huge direction that I thought really, really appealed to me for the future. Um, But women weren't allowed to be pilots at that stage. Um, So I sort of carried on with the air training corps when I went through university, I joined the university air squadron um, I'd gained a flying scholarship by then as well, so I had my private pilot's license. Uh, and I was in my second year at uni when they did change the rules, allowing women to fly on the front line of fast jet flying. And I just couldn't believe how how perfect my timing was. Um, and yeah, so that's how I basically ended up getting into it. 
I love that. My brother was a member of the ATC when he was when we were kids, and he absolutely loved it as well. I just remember the you know the sort of the that beautiful RAF blue uniform and the stories that came back and and you. I remember from your book was it your when you were eighteen you got your license your private pilot's license and you took your whole family flying. Yeah, I did actually, and it was it was it was one of the most incredible experiences. But one thing I didn't really mention in the book, which here you go, exclusive for oh. you, Katie, was the fact that <laughs> I um, was not used to flying with that much weight in the aircraft. I'd only flown with two people up to then. And suddenly I was taking four adults, all over six foot tall. And um, when I got airborne, the store water started beeping as we were taking off. And my mum said, is that normal? I was like, absolutely. As we all went, like, the wheels graced the top of the, um, I think it was a Butlins, right at the end of Blackpool Airport. And I think we nearly sort of like touched down on the roofs uh, as we went over the top. And um, yeah, up to this day, I've never really told my mum that, you know, that was quite a close to death experience for her. <laughs> so we we could just never have been having this conversation at all. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I learned about flying from that, should I say? Yes. Yeah. Cool. Um, and so then you, because I love the stories of university. I was saying to you just before we... Uh, started recording is that you know we're exactly the same age and so what I particularly loved about the book was sort of matching going through the years you would say well it's 19 such and such and I was like oh what was I doing then right yeah, yeah. and you know <laughs> and I, I I came across some similarities I'm also nearly six foot tall I could also at one stage be proud to say that I could drink a rugby team under the table hey. and <laughs> not these days no. two sniffs and I'm gone <laughs> but you know and about the time you got your license your pilot's license I was sitting my HGV lorry license oh, so wow. I just loved hearing the stories and I kind of very much sort of all Although not nearly as technical, I love the whole. I'm quite tomboysy, and just getting, you know, going through the the air squadron at university, and sort of getting really stuck in. And, and I take it that stood you in quite good stead for what came next. Yeah, it did actually. I I'm, I always say this to anybody that's thinking about a potentially a career in the forces that if they are wanting to go the university route, which Again, I think there's so much to be said for that on the maturing and growing up and learning a lot about yourself. That's a really good thing to do is to join something like the Officer Training Corps or the OTC or the or the University Air Squadron because it gives you a real insight into the Air Force and it basically tells you all the best bits as well. So I loved it. I couldn't get enough. And I think when I first joined, I was not 100% going to join the Air Force. I was sort of thinking... I'll join the University Air Squadron to keep up my private pilot's license and, and give me free flying, basically. But mm. while I was there, and they, you know, you do so much from survival training. We did ski trips and um, sailing expeditions, all sorts of things, you know, summer camps and lots of different bases. And it just sold me this fantastic picture. And I thought, wow. And one thing that really stood out above all else was I loved the banter and the camaraderie and the fact mm. that I felt really at home in it. I felt... I could be me without sort of having to get dressed up and wear high heels because that was just not me. I was never really a girly girl. And I, obviously I enjoy getting dressed up occasionally, but, you know, my default setting would in fact be tracky bottoms and a mm-hmm. pair of trainers, which has been perfect in lockdown. <laughs> yes. Just add a pretty top for a Zoom call yeah, and you're good. it's exactly <laughs> it. Everyone keeps saying, have you only got one jumper? Oh, my. <laughs> on the bottom half. <laughs> and and so then when you you said that earlier that the you timed it brilliantly because they allowed women to suddenly be on the front line and then you so you decided to take your tests and at that time or I don't know if it's still the case you can only take it twice yeah. pilot test and you failed yeah failed both times and I mean I was really devastated actually and but I was when I look back, actually, and I'm not meaning this from a 2020 hindsight sort of thing of, oh, I knew I'd get it. I sort of just couldn't quite understand why. So I, I was, and I'm not doing saying this to blow my own trumpet, but I was quite a proficient pilot. I was doing well on the University Air Squadron. I passed all of the flying tests I'd done. Mm. I'd represented the squadron in aerobatics competitions against sponsored male pilots. And yet I couldn't seem to pass these tests. And I just kept on thinking, well, this just doesn't seem right. And it was when I was talking it through my, with my boss of the University Air Squadron that he he just said, I, I don't think these, I think these tests are just not designed for, for um, women. 
you know and, and I think it's interesting isn't it when there's so much out there at the moment of sort of like are women still living in a, in a world designed for men in, in many ways mm. but certainly in those days if they'd only just opened the doors to women these tests were designed by men for men for men mm-hmm. to pass them and and we were certainly seeing that sort of proportion um, very very few women were passing the test compared to men um and you know that's why I really I'm lucky that I had people on my side you know this squadron mm. um, Carl Bufton was just a a hero in my eyes because he decided to take that case up further um through the ranks and made a case for me as well and we wrote letters and we challenged the system and eventually I mean, they took me on this initially as an air traffic controller which mm-hmm. I just took because I felt it was the foot in the door but then once I was at officer training I continued to make my case and I think I just probably bored them in the end. They were probably going, I cannot get another letter from this bloody woman. Um, and I eventually got this letter back and it just said, you know, you are giving the, being given the opportunity to get a branch change to pilot. And I was just over the moon. Um, and later I found out that I was actually taken on as a test case because they couldn't understand why so many women had failed the tests. And yet I had a proven track record for being a very capable pilot. So I was lucky to be given that opportunity. And when, well, there's luck, and there's, as I always say, the harder I try, the luckier I seem to yes. get. You know, yeah. there's a significant amount of persistence in there, I assume, as well, from all the letters and the and having the backup, as you say. But when you say that it was des- it wasn't designed for women. What you said that a couple of times in the book, and I wasn't quite sure. Like, what is involved in the tests that would disadvantage a woman? Well, I didn't quite I get think that at the time, particularly at the time. Um, a lot of guys were doing computer games. So everything yeah. from your Sonic the Hedgehogs, you see, this really show my age now. Um, you know, <laughs> it was stuff had recently come on, but Sonic is a classic one for absolutely perfect for testing your hand-to-eye coordination, uh-huh. like going around these tunnels, collecting gold rings and things. Um, but actually, there's lots and lots of different ones in there. And it's not that they are specifically designed for men, but it was very interesting that so few women were passing them. Mm. So... It was at this point when they probably realised, you know, there was there an unconscious bias that had been put into these tests right. that they had no idea that that existed. But when they looked at the tests, and they also the tests were quite outdated, um, they'd been around since the start of time almost, and you know, <laughs> aircraft had moved on quite substantially as well, fly by wire mm-hmm. systems and things like that. So actually, the pure just mandrolic testing they were doing had, was probably not relevant to the current aircraft types that were out there. And so they did redesign the tests and they became a little bit more psychometric as well in there, mm-hmm. uh, as well as the pure hand-to-eye coordination and things like that. Um, when I got invited down, I was, it was when I was flying on the tornado and I got invited back to Cram 1. They said, we'd like you to sit the tests again. Mm-hmm. We want to see if, if you can pass. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is the most stressful day. Can you imagine now I'm a qualified frontline <laughs> pilot and I still would fail the test. I passed them. I just want to say I passed the test. Yes, well done. So <laughs> I have to breathe a sigh of relief at that point. <laughs> because you talked a little bit, quite a lot in your book about the sort of imposter syndrome, because although we you did become the pilot that you wanted to be, because you hadn't passed these tests and because you'd come at it sort of from a slightly different route, there was quite a lot of this. Yeah. Am I really good enough? Am I really supposed to be here? Yeah, I think it's a very interesting one. In fact, a lot of people that have read the book have picked up on the imposter syndrome because I think mm. so many people do have it. In fact, I was on a walk with my husband this morning. We were talking about imposter syndrome, the fact that he thinks he might have suffered from this as well. And I think... It's when you just constantly have someone in the back of your mind thinking, you know, saying to you, gosh, you're not good enough. What on earth are you doing here? When are you going to get found mm. out? And I think it can be quite debilitating for some people. But it's, I think for myself, it was definitely there, but I was never going to let it win. You know, I was never going to listen to those voices and just have that as the overwhelming factor as to why I couldn't perhaps do what I wanted to do. So, but um, many women have actually contacted me since reading the book and said, thank you so much. It's really made me realise that what I have been suffering with all these years is imposter syndrome, even though I've been promoted three times, I've proved mm. myself I'm a really talented, you know, leader. I still think, what am I, when are they going to find out? I don't know what I'm doing, you know. So it's an interesting one. It is an interesting one. And I, uh, I, I suffer from it. And I have to now just, what I do is I sort of think to myself, well, it's absolute nonsense because people employ you to do this job or you have proven in the past that you can do that now that comes with age and it comes with experience 
And anytime I feel it now, I think, oh, really, come on. Yes. Pull get a grip of yourself. Yes, exactly. But that, you know, to have that sort of frame of mind when you were as young as you were and under the pressure you were, that shows quite a serious amount of grit, I think. Yeah, I, I look back now and I think, my God, I think I showed some resilience going through training. And I think I think all of us did, by the way. Um, mm. You know, it's a really, really intense flying training system. I can imagine. One of my colleagues, uh, a great friend of mine, Rob, described it as basics like doing an advanced driving test twice a day for a 10-month period. Now, you've done your HGB test, so you'll know what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> stressful and I think that that level of stress that you're constantly your bucket your stress bucket can never empty yeah just constantly being topped up and it's sort of working out how you live with that level of chronic stress uh, in the background um and it does make you more resilient without a doubt and how how did you or how did you manage that because that was one of the questions I want to ask you because obviously all through training uh, as you just said, you know, the constant stress, you know, you can, you can fail at any time until at the point where you say they've spent so much on you that they're going to try and make you not fail. Yeah. <laughs> but then of course you're into you, when you went uh, from training into active duty and then it was, you know, a different shift. And then, you know, in, when you were actually flying missions, I mean, the insane amount of adrenaline and cortisol and everything that's pumping through your system. How do you keep healthy mentally healthy um so I've always been really into sport and mm. I think that that has been one of the saving graces and they really really encourage that um you know within the forces for people to stay physically fit um, mm. and now it's mandatory as well I mean we do we do compulsory fitness tests every six months and things like that but it's mm -hmm. more than just that I think it is about you know the whole healthy body healthy mind mm. because for the other thing that I've often really spent time doing is walking and I've always people talk a lot about mindfulness and things like that I use walking as my moment of mindfulness I often I mm -hmm. don't listen to music sadly I'm sorry to say Katie I don't even listen to podcasts I just basically <laughs> have silence and it gives my brain that reset mode um, mm -hmm. and I think I've learned that later in life I don't think I did that quite so well when I was going through training but I think having really good friends that are doing exactly the same thing mm -hmm. as yourself so that you can talk about it and go, oh my gosh, this is awful, you know, and yeah. you know, and you're all in exactly the same place. So, yeah. you know, sharing those experiences, and I, you know, the that that intensity of sharing experiences like that is sort of like the, the going through university. You know, you do so much changing and so much maturing and everything at university that those friends often stay friends for life. And I think that's very much like those friends that I went through fast year training with. Part, it's part of the point of me doing this podcast was because you know sort of linked back to that imposter syndrome or that sort of I'm not good enough or I'm not doing whatever I should be doing or want to be doing or oh, all those crazy thoughts that you can that people can think I wanted to talk to women who have achieved incredible things so that other women can think huh no way she feels like that too. She's a real woman. She, you know, not just with all these incredible achievements, but that, that, as you say, we're all going through so much in our lives, you know, and as women, careers and then motherhood and marriage and now a flipping global pandemic, you know, <laughs> it just helps so much, I think, to hear that other people are just human. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree with that because I think, when you're young and you hear, for example, I think when I was going through and there was some, you know, a fast jet pilot, you'd go, oh my gosh, you know, you hold them on a pedestal. But, you know, having flown fast jets, you realise we are we are all human. I mean, and, mm. and actually we're all pretty humble about it. We, quite a lot of us don't even think we're very good. You know, we sort of say, <laughs> I'm an average pilot. They go, well, you can possibly be average because you're a fast jet pilot. You go, well, I'm an average fast jet pilot, you know. And, you know, and also I come from a very normal background, you know, my mum mm. was a teacher, my dad owned his own carpet business. And I think that when you hear of people, you know, having extraordinary jobs, you know, be it sort of international sailing around the world and all of these sort of things, it's hard to actually break those down back into normal people. But mm. they are. 
and they have got all the same pressures. And if you were to ask me what my biggest challenge to, to date, it, it was being in lockdown with two teenage boys. I honestly, <laughs> it was, I would have preferred to be shot at in Iraq than again, you know, it was just so stressful. And I kept thinking, I am failing as a parent. I am failing as a parent because we are all human and everyone, and this has been a really good leveler for so many people, mm. um, you know, because we're all in the same boat. Exactly. And in lockdown, so many, you know, everybody's working from home. So as we were talking about earlier, the old classic Zoom, you know, we're all wearing our tracksuit trousers underneath at the yeah. underneath our desk, having to deal with this. And I have to say, I was very grateful for the age of my kids during lockdown, yeah. sort of 10 and 12, because I thought people with tiny tinies oh. and people with teenagers, I thought those must have been two of the hardest ages to deal with yeah and the thought of being I mean my two boys are had the most energy when they were growing up of any kids I'd ever met they literally were batting off the walls if I didn't they were like puppies I had to walk them mm. and take them out for <laughs> hours and hours and there's only 17 months between them and if I had been in lockdown with them when they were sort of three and four and then you weren't allowed to go out oh my word I just don't know what we'd have done um yeah. it was bad enough sort of coping with the teenage side of it but it was a very, <laughs> a very different challenge you know it's more psychological I think than yeah else. yeah and missing friends and all that sort of stuff yeah um so I wanted to ask you a question because when I was uh thinking about leaving university I was going to go traveling that was the only thing I wanted to do but like you and you're flying all I wanted to do was go traveling which I eventually did but I did toy for a while with the forces and you were talking earlier about um about the basic training, the training of, you know, right at the beginning and how tough it was and how the physical side of it is something that helped. But there surely must be an, an exceptionally hard physical side to that, not just in the basic training, but later on when you did your combat survival and your rescue and all that sort of thing. The physical side of it, and I don't even mean you as a woman, I mean you as being in the forces, yeah. must be incredibly difficult. Yeah, Um it's interesting I mean fitness wise it's fine um you just have to get fit and you stay fit and you stay strong and mm. you know and that was absolutely fine I, I loved that I relished that side of it as well so that wasn't a huge mm. problem um being on things like survival exercises it was interesting because I recently recorded the audiobook for um the officer for an officer not a gentleman and it was fascinating because mm. of course I made quite a few mistakes as I'm recording it and you could see the, the guy that's sort of in the studio with me and he's sort of like oh stop oh I heard you make a mistake but the the chapter all about the survival exercise the conduct mm. after capture course it's actually almost double the length of any of the other chapters and I made <laughs> no mistakes because even I was quite engrossed reading it <laughs> he was like, this is amazing but it's just a it, I have to say, getting that sort of insight into what is going on, you know, living out in the field for sort of, you know, long periods of time, you know, and how do you cope with that as well, sort of psychologically and physically, and you're exhausted and you're cold and you haven't eaten anything apart from a, a rabbit that you've caught, you know. It, it was challenging, but, yeah, again, it, you just take it all in, in your in, within mm. the, the pace of what you're doing you know it's on in, in the next step because it's just something that you have to do and you know you have to do it so you're not there for debating and saying well I don't really fancy going into a <laughs> living in that bush for 10 days but you just get on with it um, mm -hmm. but at the end of that conduct after capture course I have to say it very nearly broke many of us that were on the course mm. it was one of the most challenging um, mentally and physically things I'd actually ever done and then you said you'd spoken to someone who had actually been captured and they said it didn't even touch the sides. Yeah. So um, John Peterson, John Nichols were shot down in Gulf War One, And um, I've worked with John, well, both Johns now, you know, sort of a few times. And, you know, when John Peters talks about the experience, yeah, it didn't. He just said, that, you know, it, it was nothing like the real thing, because ultimately in the back of your mind, you know, they're not going to hurt you. Mm. Whereas obviously if you are a prisoner of war for real, you, you do not have that guarantee oh well thank goodness that didn't happen to you but yeah. you did end up um out in Iraq three times is that right yeah I did three tours of duty over Iraq yeah and I remember you saying in the book that the change from the training aspect of it which was tough but you were with friends and people that knew you and trusted you and, and all that moving into active duty was a whole different ball game yeah it was really interesting um 
because I think for five years of training, you're cocooned with the same group of people, really. I mean, mm. you change a few faces come and go, but you're always overlapping on all the different courses. And so there's a sort of a core of maybe about 30 of you that are going through this sausage factory. And they all just and they all knew me as Mandy, you know, or Big Bird or Wellesley or whatever I was sort of nicknamed at the time. And they just knew me for what I was. Mm. And then, of course, I arrived down on my first squadron and they didn't know me. I I didn't know anybody there apart from one guy who was a few courses in front of me, um, a guy, Baggers, who was an absolute top chap. Thank goodness he was around. Mm. But everyone else just saw me as a woman that has come in and suddenly Mm. they are going to have to potentially change their behaviours around me. I mean... I've sort of mentioned it in the book, little things like, you know, all screensavers were naked women. You know, when I first walked in, the next day I made them all naked men. And then the next day after that, they're all landscapes, you know. (laughs) I was sort of, I mean, it was minor things. It was just sort of, it took behavioural changes from both sides. Um, Mm -hmm. And the RAF, I don't think, was quite ready for women on the front line. Um, Mm. They hadn't got any kit, for example. We, I flew in male long johns, with a wife front down the, you know, the yeah. front, which cut your hips in half, you know, for the whole of my career, by the way. So that yeah. was just for the first couple of years, it didn't even change. And again, I never even argued it. I didn't say, oh, I really want to get some female long johns. I just accepted that that was what it was. Um, and so, you know, there was never any female toilets. So I always just shared loose. And again, it didn't seem to bother. I look back and I think, I don't know why. I just, it was what was, it was what existed at the time so I never challenged it I never thought oh I need to say something about this this is inappropriate I just went oh that's fine so I just made a sign that says Mandy's using it you know and then no one even bothered <laughs> with that in the end so yeah. you know you just get on with it but it, it was that was a little bit of a shock to the system actually um suddenly I felt quite isolated when I got to my squadron initially want to come back to that but I just talking about the accepting things I something that really struck a chord with me in the book was when you said I can't remember at what point but that some of your male colleagues suddenly were like, uh, Mandy, have you not noticed how they're talking to you and how they're treating you? And that you hadn't noticed. And I find that is such a sad thing of women, certainly, I hope not past our generation, but certainly up to our generation. I just don't think we noticed or we realized that it's sometimes just totally inappropriate. Yeah, it was a it was a real monumental thing actually, and it was it was sort of fascinating that they did notice. And mm. actually, what a sad indictment as to the time, like you say, Katie, that you know we just I felt oblivious, and people say, oh, you know, were you just quite thick skinned? I don't think it was even that. I just genuinely didn't think I noticed, or you just assumed it was all part and parcel to what you mm. were doing, you know. But and they were all such minor comments. I mean, when this one finally. Um, was elevated it was only the fact that there were say 20 instructors and every single one of them would just make one little bit of banter nobody meant it maliciously you know no one you know had any sort of like um story that they were trying to you know to to process themselves or anything like that they would all just go oh see which jet mandy's obviously parked you know obviously it's not straight you know or oh obviously you know we'll hold the debrief in half an hour after you've applied your makeup you know or if you said, oh, God, off, you know, they'd go, oh, time of the month, you know. Oh. So it was all, it was, it was all <laughs> minor things. Yeah. You know, all things that could have been just, it was just banter. And they never meant it maliciously. But it was when you think that 20 instructors all mm. make one, one comment each a day. And that's when it was um, two of the guys, Rob and Tristan, and they just said, Mandy, do you mind if we speak to the boss? We, we don't like this we think that you're getting an undue amount of pressure put on you for all these comments. And I sort of went, gosh. And then the boss apologised to me. And I said, you are aware that this is not me and I'm not wanting to create trouble or anything. He said, Mandy, no, not at all. He said, I'm really pleased that, that, you know, your course mates have stood up for you and have elevated this to me. Because again, no one meant any harm by it, but Mm. everybody just needed a reset button to say, actually, can you just try to lay off those sorts of comments a bit? Yeah, yeah, because it just sort of, after a while, um, the, 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 they do seep in. Yeah. Because I was telling somebody uh, the story the other day of when I was doing my HGB and uh, we were all, there were all men going through it at the same time as me. And I'd been teaching off-road driving for a few years and things like that. And you know, it was always the, oh yeah, women drivers, you know, ha ha ha, that kind of, you know, daft, silly banter that you're like, yeah, whatever. 
And then when it came to the HGV, when my cohort went through, I worked in events. That's how I was doing my HGV. I was going to ask you, how did you end up getting? Oh, uh, I was working in event management and they needed people to drive lorries to events. Oh, and I was okay. like, yeah, cool for it. My mum's got her HGV license. So I thought, well, like mother, like daughter. Yeah, I love it. that. And uh, we have to sit, uh, you know, to sit the, the theory, then the practical. And of all of us, I was the only one who passed the theory and the practical first time. So I was like, oh, yeah. yeah, in oh, your yeah. faces. <laughs> Get in there. <laughs> oh, I love that. Fantastic. Yes. Yeah, so this is my little moment of glory. I was telling somebody that the other day. <laughs> yeah. You're allowed to um, glory like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you said that when you, you started, you, you had some tough times, especially your first tour in Iraq, quite isolating, yeah. quite you know, very much feeling like the only woman. Yeah, I have said that. Uh, when I look back over my RF career, that was the lowest point because I had worked so hard to get to that point. And I think it's only really on reflection that you realise just probably the additional pressures of going through as one of the only women. Um, and I didn't know that at the time, by the way. It was only mm. when you reflect back where you think, actually, yeah, it must have been tough for the guys, but at the same time, they weren't probably dealing with the additional layers of stress that mm. were in there as well. Um, and there was just a couple of characters, or one character in particular, that, again, he was struggling with things that were going on at home, and he just decided to make my life, you know, unpleasant out there mm. in a form of, of bullying. And, yeah, again, it's really awkward. Um, I just kept my head down, but I got more and more isolated. I was ringing home in tears. Um, mm. And my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, was going, oh, Mandy, get a grip sort of thing. I said, don't let them, you know, don't let them get you down. Um, but actually, it really did because I had no other women to talk to out there. And, mm. so, and I didn't really have any great friends at that point. Um and so much so that when I got home, I actually really thought about have I made a monumental error by mm. going fast jets and going through to the squadron. And um, it made me think about, did I want to carry on with this as my career? Um, that's how low I felt. But then there was a slight change in personality on the squadron. We had some new blood that came in and it seemed to be a real turning point, real characters that I genuinely clicked with. Mm. And then it made me realise it's not just about gender because they were yeah. men it's about personalities and yeah. you know actually was this newer age of pilots that were coming through were a little bit more in touch with who they were and you know were happy to talk about emotions as opposed to eat glass you know, <laughs> characters. and I think we have seen a slight change actually in personalities um going through you know to the front line of fast jet flying as well in more recent years without a doubt in what way I just think um We've become more human. We've realised that men do need to talk about their emotions as well. Mm. Um, it's not considered a weakness to say I'm struggling and asking for help. Mm. And you know, and the guys that I was seeing coming through at that that point were definitely more aligned to that side of things. Um, you know, people are more likely to talk about mental health issues. In one year, about three years ago now, I lost four different colleagues and friends all to suicide all oh, men Andy. all in their 40s and 50s all former fast jet pilots and I just think that you know there had to be this change really um and it's not just that mental health is so much more on the agenda these days but you know to to take people through fast jet training and then try to break them is mm. a ridiculous thing when you've spent you know sort of millions of pounds to get them to that point apparently mm. about 3.7 million to take them onto the front line of fast jet flying and we definitely saw a change when we left um valley to go to RAF um lossy mouth because then you're flying the tornado it's almost like you'd proved yourself and now they were not there to try and catch you out they mm. were there to try to get the best from you if you know what I mean and it really felt like a shift it's extraordinary I was somebody I was interviewing quite recently and I wanted to ask a similar question because there must be, you know, men feel fear, they feel homesick, they feel all the things that women feel. And one of the advantages there is to being a woman is that we, A, we're allowed in, in quotation marks to sort of express it, but we are more like inclined yeah. to, to sort of just have a cry or have a, you know, a bit of a wobble. And nobody thinks as much of it. 
No, absolutely. And I've always been a bit of a crier, to be honest. Mm. Any of my friends at university, and if Ghost was on, quite frankly, I made sure it was silent so I could howl really loudly. <laughs> it's like never interrupt a ghost moment. Um, but I actually love a good cry. I, I find mm. it really cathartic. And I just, it almost makes me a bit sad that so many of the guys would be, say, struggling and wouldn't feel that they could cry about something, you know, mm. or wouldn't feel that they could show emotions. And you know, I think I think society has changed so much as well. Oh. Thank goodness. Thank goodness it, it's become more human and it's it's accepted that we need to ask for help. Um, you know, and I, I just think there's been a really lovely thing. I'm, I'm, this is not a plug, but basically my husband in this lockdown has been working with a company that's set up out of um, lockdown just because with so many people within aviation are really struggling. And it's called Resilient Pilot. And all of these older generation, I use that loosely, but people with a little bit more experience within aviation under their belt are basically offering up their time, running mentoring sessions for all of these younger younger guys and girls that are coming through that may have you know, spent £150,000 to get their licence and then have nothing to show for it because they can't finish it off. And yeah. it's just devastating. And I mean, my husband's mentoring 10 different pilots now oh. um, and and coaching them. And it's saying, you know, this is the highlight of my week you know, talking to you. And, you know, and I just think that is fantastic that people are giving their time, that people are talking. And I and it's just opened up that agenda and it said it's OK to talk. and It's OK to feel sad and it's OK to cry if we want to. Quite right. And do you teach I take it you teach your boys that because I teach my son that I never want him to feel like he can't express how he's feeling yeah absolutely and it's been it's it's really interesting I've got two very very different boys mm. one I will watch say Forrest Gump with and we both burst into tears exactly the same moment he's much more aligned to me I can see him getting quite emotional if we're watching you know a program on television or something and I can see it's almost like I know when you're about to cry and it's exactly the same moment I am and then I have another son that literally I can't tell you the last time I saw him cry um <laughs> And even when our dog died, he didn't cry. And I was like, it is okay to cry, you know? And he's like, I don't want to. And I thought, gosh, it's fascinating that mm. myself and my other son were howling, you know? Um, <laughs> but it's just, it's about also accepting, therefore, that people are different and yeah. some people don't want to. And I said, you know what? It's not It's not weak. It's nothing. It's, 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 it's okay to cry. And he goes, I know, but I just don't want to. I thought, okay, fine. Yeah, no, I'm I'm a real crier. I cry at the drop of a hat. Yeah. And it's usually out of, you know, relief or release or, you know, as you say, a sad movie. My mum used to ban me from watching Lassie when oh. I was a wee girl because I just couldn't cope. <laughs> I couldn't have this. It was called the Friday Night Howler. My sister and I used to basically get the tissues, the chocolate, and we'd watch like the beaches or something like that. I both sit Kramer versus Kramer, classic, howling. And my mum would go, really, girls? We're like, we want to. We like Yeah. It. <laughs> And and yet my best friend takes a lot to make her cry. Yeah. And like, she's no less emotional in terms of her, you know, feeling and so on. But she just, she's just not a crier. Whereas, yeah. oh yeah, I love a good old howl. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so much better afterwards. Yeah. So, um, uh, so after, so with respect to what your husband's doing, you're working together now, yeah. um, I believe. And t tell us what you do now with all the experience that you have from everything we've talked about. Yeah, so when I left the Air Force, I it was just, oh my gosh, it's just coming up for 10 years ago. I don't know where the time has mm. gone. It seems, you know, like it was yesterday. Um, I did what everyone else was doing because I just had no idea what to do. And I thought, well, I've everyone becomes an airline pilot. So I retrained to be an airline pilot, got my license, um, you know, after a lot of costs and all the ground school exams and flying exams. And I sort of held this license and I had this moment of horror where I thought, I don't know if I want to be an airline pilot. And also there was a logistical issue, um, which was a really big point, was the fact that my husband at that point had left the Navy and was flying for the airlines. And I thought, my gosh, if we both trying to fly for the airlines, I have two children aged four and five. How on earth is that going to work, you know? Um, and so I thought well, I'm going to have to do something different. And it was at this stage when I was flying as a volunteer reservist at the weekends, flying cadets from the air training course. And I flew with this young girl and right at the end, she was actually a really, really good pilot and she blew me away. And I sort of said, my goodness, you're really good. And she was like, oh yeah, but you said it to everyone. And I said, well, actually I've never said it to anyone, you know, you're really talented. And you could see this sort of penny dropping moment where she realized that she could do this and it put it it 
all the sort of the cogs came together to say, oh my gosh, now I get why I need to work at school because if I get my exams, then I can become a part. You know, so, and it, mm. it was in that moment where I also realised, my goodness, as an individual, you can make a huge difference by just passing on this self-belief, you know. And I'd been asked to speak at quite a few schools at that point because of my experiences of um, mm-hmm. flying. And I don't remember, I was like, yeah, of course I can do that. And I've always been quite an extravert, if I'm really honest, I'm as E as it comes on the Myers-Briggs, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I quite enjoyed it. And then quite a few of the business owners of children at the school would say, oh, actually, if you're doing the school, is there any chance that you would be able to do our business? And I thought, well, yes, of course I could. And then the crux came, and this is a hilarious like not in the book sort of thing um I was a drunk at a dinner party and basically I was telling the getting shot at in Iraq story to someone blaring on as I was in drunk manner and this woman at the table said oh my gosh I've got this huge event coming up and I would really love a, a strong female speaker about decision making it's to the insurance industry and I said could you tell that story and I was like absolutely and uh, that's when I really had my first breakthrough as a proper keynote speaker and I then sort of built that business up. And so over 10 years, I'd gone from just probably speaking, I don't know, once or twice a month to being almost fully booked globally across the world. A lot of travel, which is fantastic with teenage boys. Um, <laughs> so I couldn't leave my husband to deal with it. Um, but actually, it's been really great and I have loved it. Um, and I realised as well, all the, all the lessons that aviation were doing really well on the human factors side of things so when I say human factors it's you know we've got all the technical skills it's looking at all the non-technical skills like communication skills decision making um, risk threat analysis uh, leadership and teamwork and they do mandatory training in uh, raising people's awareness to these these elements to ensure that when we're flying that we're flying in a really safe aircraft ensuring that perhaps the first officer has a voice and wants to challenge you know they feel empowered so giving people the tools to enable better discussions over conflict to happen. And as I was doing all my keynote speaking, one of the things that I kept on getting asked to speak about were all of the things that aviation was doing brilliantly. Mm. And so I therefore decided to change my business sort of model, not just do the keynote speaking, but also to do quite a lot of facilitated training work with different businesses as well. And that's my husband is at, he's brilliant at this. He's top of the game within He's probably one of the most qualified airline pilots, you know, that there is in the UK because he's got every single um, sort of, you know, certificate on the mm, wall kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, but he is really particularly good at the human factor elements. And so with my backstory and also his experience, we rolled out our business, which was called um, Experience from the Frontline. And that's been great, going really, really well. That's incredible. I love that. I, there's sort of things that I highlighted in your book that things like teamwork, you know, comes from acting selflessly. I love the story about the boys making you cycle around the oh, the yard, if that's the yeah. right word, to, you yeah. know, to practice your battle turns. Have I got the right terminology? <laughs> you have. I am really impressed. <laughs> Not many people would remember that. Yeah. Battle turns. Yeah. And, you know, all that sort of thing. And then, um, you know, you won a lot of leadership awards while you were flying, actively flying, you know, learning to listen, taking on another point of view, making a decision. Now, I've, it's something I've always really struggled with, that sort of how do you know when, you know, you've just got to override and say right now, n- no time, let's go. And when is yeah. there, a, you know, take it on and make a usually a fairly quick assimilation of, oh, yeah, actually that could work within the plan I already had. How do you sort of teach that kind of thing? Well, actually, bizarrely, aviation um, give us a model, and it's called DODAR, and actually it's been brilliant. I use this all the time. I actually use it, you know, personally as well. But um, what it stands for is diagnose the problem. So you make a really quick assessment of what it is, but more importantly, you share that, because you and I will see something, but because we have different backgrounds, you would make a completely different mental model of what is happening to the one that I have and if we're starting from different places that's where often really poor decisions get made because you're assuming that I'm seeing what you're seeing Mm. so you share and diagnose the problem share it with the team and then you ask the team for options and you put it out there and you say three minutes or two minutes or you know we've got two days to make this this decision so go away have a think about all your options and then bring them back to me and then so that's the O. Mm. then you as the leader 
assimilate all that information when they, they feed it back to you and make a decision. And then you assign the tasks oh. and then you review it. Think what has changed since the start. Now, you British Airways use it with a T at the start for time because you might have three minutes or you might have an hour or you might have days. Mm. So how much time do we have? And then everyone's working from that same time frame. But by doing that, one of the things that really does ensure is that you as the leader are not always putting your opinion first. Mm. You're getting the opinion of other people from your team and therefore you can listen really logically to their arguments and to what they would do. Um, and then you can make a really balanced opinion on it and make a decision. But um, people all know where they're up to with it. And it's really helped with procrastination over decision making, mm. sped, sped up so much as well. And uh, yeah, it's proved to be very, very powerful. And how does one make those sorts of decisions in the sort of in the moment that you had when you, you know, you were saying you t told the being shot at an Iraq story, you presume you had to make some very fast, fast decisions. Yeah, you do. But but the great thing about the training that you have is it prepares you for that. So you do a lot of flying in the simulator, mm. uh, even to the point where you put the maps of, you know, of Iraq into the simulator. So you feel like you're flying in Iraq. Mm. Don't quite see temperature enough, but, um, you know, you're not sweating as much as you are when you're out there. But <laughs> Um, they do all those sorts of things so that when something happens, you've trained for it. So when we were engaged by a surface-to-air missile and it was locked onto my engines, again, this was a manoeuvre that I have practised, if you can imagine, hundreds of times, normally in daylight, normally, obviously, without a surface-to-air missile locked on. But the actual going, it's almost like you put a cassette into your brain and, and the second it happens and your nav shouts, you know, break right, which he did, I instantly responded with exactly the correct set of actions mm. because it's programmed into you. And I think when you have that, it's something that works so well for something like aviation is because if you are following procedures and following something that you've been trained to do, it now frees up your capacity to enable you to make clearer decisions with what is left. But if you're constantly thinking about how you fly the aeroplane, mm. you aren't there for your stress bucket's already full. Yeah. But actually, if what is being done, which is why things like we learn all of our checks so that our checks are completely routine. Again, all done by memory so that your hands fly around the cockpit, doing them without having to use the capacity to actually think about what you're doing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the training really helps for that as well. Um, but obviously you get that massive adrenaline spike mm. at the same time. But if you must always go back to your basics and go, Doda, right, this is what's happened. You know, and you say it on the radio mm. and you say, team, options, three minutes, and they will come back with the information. So it, it, your training works. Mm. Um, and there's a reason that they've spent so long getting you to that point. It's so that you can act um, not as a robot, still thinking. And that was one of the things that I had huge respect for, was seeing teams working out there and and, and actively changing their decision-making processes mm. um, as situations changed quickly as well. Oh, fascinating stuff. I, I love all that. I could talk to you all day just about that because <laughs> um, I did a lot of sort of that kind of team building and all those sorts of things when I was at uh, in events. And yeah. it's I have a sort of a love-hate relationship with it because it can be used so badly, but when it's done well with people with the right kind of experience, it's so incredibly powerful. Yeah. In fact, I don't find it quite fun when you're doing events and you do sort of team building stuff and you think it's hilarious. The second you put people into this like team building scenario, <laughs> they then forget about the fact there needs to be a leader and you just see them all like moshing around the place. <laughs> all of the teaching you know so you do like a leaderless exercise and it's chaotic <laughs> yeah. and the next one you go why not put a leader in they go oh my gosh that works really well doesn't it you're like yeah that's why we tend to have a leader <laughs> <laughs> that's <laughs> why I think people are so fascinated by all these sort of um you know the island and all these sort of is it yeah. Bear Grylls does all these things that you know people just yeah is human nature and all the human factors yeah. as you say just you know if people are used to having a leader and they want a leader, they'll have it. And if they're not, then they won't. And it's, you know, as you say, this sort of the training always, you know, it's certainly in your military career, there's always somebody leading at some point. Yeah, yeah there is. And um, 
I'd love to go on Bear Grylls. I'd love to go on the island. <laughs> you should every do it. Watch, every time I watch it, I think, oh, just take charge, for goodness sake. I know, it's all these amazing women that you see going, oh, well, you know, and you're like, no, seriously, you have the best ideas. You've got yes. a voice. Get on with it. Never mind the shouty, ignorant man yeah. in the corner. <laughs> oh, exactly. Oh, dear. I, I find it fascinating. But I do, it's, it's sort of like that whole... You, it's a it's appalling to watch occasionally, but you can't quite draw yourself away from it. Can you? <laughs> oh, I love it! But no, I would really. That's the one one that I always think. Yeah, I'd quite like to do that. I could never do an SAS Who Dares Wins because I'm just quite frankly not fit enough these days, and it would well, kill yeah. me. Well, my um, husband is super, super fit, but he's also said, no, that's it. I'm too old now. They would all yeah. absolutely whip me. <laughs> oh, gosh. Absolutely. They should do a veterans one, like not like not veterans as in you are officially a veteran. I mean, like yeah. a sporting over 40s veterans. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Can we lift half the plank? <laughs> <laughs> Can we just hold the rifle out in front of us for like 10 seconds? Instead yeah, of one exactly. hour? <laughs> we'll cut it really well for the edit. Yeah. <laughs> So tell me when you were away uh, on on your doing your tours and flying your missions, were you when were you most afraid? Um, where, did you allow yourself to fear fear feel fear? Because I, I'm sorry to sort of interrupt your answer, but I remember Dee Kafari again. I referred to her when she was sailing solo around the world. She says you just can't feel it at the time. You haven't got time. It's only afterwards you can go. Well, that was quite full on. Yeah, and that's exactly how I was sort of thinking of it, really, because I never felt, and I'm not saying this because I'm a hard case mm. at all, I'm really not, I'm, I'm, all my friends are like, gosh, you should be a bit harder. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, I never felt fear. That was not the emotion you experienced. You, the, what I was most fearful of was letting my team down, mm. not about getting shot down or not about you know getting an injury or even being taken prisoner of war. I was always most fearful about letting my team down and um you know and being and maybe being caught out for not being good enough so mm. the imposter side of it was probably mm. more powerful but the actual actions of of going to war of of uh, flying over Iraq that was that didn't bother me at all um it genuinely didn't and on one occasion we were tasked to go really far north um way further than off where we've been flying up to at that point almost towards Baghdad and it was it was literally like a bonfire night they were firing all these missiles into the air and my nav said fancy your goggles your night vision goggles up or down at the moment I went they're down they're up and he went yeah leave them there obviously like a small child click the goggles came straight down I was like oh my god it was like fireworks literally racing through the sky and um we were involved in quite a technical mission that night we landed afterwards and it'd been really top secret up to that point as well we were not allowed to discuss this could not get you know Mm. any telephone calls it was you know and um about a day later I called my mum and I went just to let you know mum I'm alive and she went good well done you so am I um and they had had no um exposure to this that it wasn't in the papers until about a week later actually um when I sort of said to my mum I'm okay she was like yeah, well done what, you know why and I was like oh sorry we weren't on quite a big bombing mission she's like oh dear darling I really don't really want to know until you're home <laughs> don't tell me anything I was like okay fine oh. yes and did your, um, I know you didn't fly tornadoes again after you had your kids or even once you were pregnant, but did your attitude to flying or anything, did it change at all once you had kids? Yeah, I did. I think your propensity to risk does change once you become a parent. Um, I, well, I can only speak from becoming a mother. Mm. I don't know if it was the same for the guys. Um, but yeah, I, I'd always had this sort of thought in my head was if I was to die doing what I love doing, well, then. I die doing what I love doing and yes my parents and my boyfriend would miss mm. me my sister, but actually I had no one dependent on me but once you've had kids and you think I'm now doing what I love doing my word is the risk is it higher now is it you know or, or certainly your definition of the risk appears to have changed because you then think gosh if I die now it's going to ruin the lives of these two little boys um and it didn't ever change it for things like I don't know um, perhaps you know doing sort of commercial flying or flying a small little propeller airplane or even flying hawks or anything like that I just I never went back to war after that Mm. and I don't think that would have changed when I if I did what are your favorite memories what are the things you love most you hold most dear to your heart about your whole um, military career um 
think it would be definitely the training actually and the camaraderie that you have on the training and those friendships you know sort of that sort of such it feels like they're in technicolor you know what mm. I mean sort of like say those universities of, uh, sorry the experiences you have at university a bit like those ones where you still remember things really clearly and yet you can't remember sort of stuff that's happened like five years ago but you know you really remember things and I think it's that powerful feeling of being part of a team that would really go the extra mile for each other and that is something that was really overwhelming for myself um and then a really lovely one actually was one that caught me completely by surprise and it was in my latter tour basically I'd taken a what was classed as a very boring job but it fitted into my lifestyle with basically two two boys under the age of two and it was at um, in Salisbury. It was half an hour away from my home here in Winchester. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I can actually make my a career in the RAF work as a mum. And I took it. And when I walked in, there was a, a, an elderly gentleman sort of sitting in. And they said, you're going to be sharing your office here with this gentleman, Steve Cox. And he was about 70-ish at the time, I, you know. And we got on like a house on fire. It was like... We laughed, we cried. Well, I, there was many crying for me again. But, you know, we roared with laughter and, and we really clicked. And it, again, it was a really lovely thing because it was so unexpected to be sharing an office with someone that was, what, sort of old enough to be easily be my parents, you know, potentially be my grandparents sort of thing. And yet we got on brilliantly uh, as, as true friends as well. And that was a really lovely, um, quite unexpected thing that happened towards the end of my career yeah it's so lovely it's it's so true when you you talk about that because you know we've sort of I've talked on and off during this conversation about when I was in events and it's very similar sort of camaraderie like really intense yeah. really hard working really hard partying and some of my favorite memories and it's similar age group as well sort of my mid to late 20s yeah. into my yeah to my I was about 30 and it's just, it's that kind of, as you say, it's the people that you remember and the the laughs and the hard times and the, just the, that it's such a great time when you are, well, as you were a young mum at the time, but you know, in your last friendship you mentioned there, but it's so good, you know, and it's almost, I think, they're the people that know you at your absolute worst <laughs> yeah. and your absolute best, and they still want to be friends with you. <laughs> yes yeah absolutely and you're right actually I think it is a very similar mentality to that event side because when the pressure is on and I know because I'm in events now mm. as well you know you see I see how hard the events team I obviously swan in and do a speech <laughs> but I see how hard the events team are working to make sure that every eventuality has been mm. covered before it happens and then you know that party afterwards where they go We've done it, <laughs> yeah. you know, especially for some of these ones, which are huge events mm. to organise. Um, and there is a real sense of coming together as a team. And, and yeah, I completely get where you're coming from on that. I love it. It reminds me of a comment my dad made uh, in his speech at our wedding. And he said something like, you can judge the character of a person by the friends they have and how long, you know, the sort of how many, how long they've been friends. And he yeah. then pointed out around the room bless him because he didn't know all my friends obviously but he just basically yeah. went around the room and he said there are people here from school from university from this from that from the next thing and from blah, blah, blah. and I thought gosh how that's really astute of you to have seen that there were so many people from different parts of my life here and it was such yeah. a and I you know I I think of that every time we have a like a special birthday or something you think how fortunate you are that you go through life yeah. with those sort of little pockets of people that know you from different parts of your life or at times. Yeah. How nice. Absolutely. And it is, it, it, it's, it is really powerful. And I was sort of trying to say that to my boys, actually, because we've been in a debate, debate about do they go to university, do they not? Um, and, you know, and, and I know that there's huge costs associated with, for example, going to university at the moment. And university is not for everybody. Mm. It's not for one of my sons. He said, I, I'm not going to go. Um but those friendships that you do make, those really huge turning points in your life are friends that stay forever. And I look around now and I think, my word, some of my closest friends, you know, um, are the, quite a lot of them actually are the people from the University Air Squad. Yeah. Bizarre. Yesterday we were out walking with them, one of them, you know, 
um, it was the girl Ness that I went through officer selection with, and she got selected to to join, and and that I didn't. <laughs> um, but um, so we were just, and you think, gosh, it's amazing. Those friendships will be there for life. Yeah, very lovely. Listen, I honestly, this has just been so fascinating. I just the book. An officer, not a gentleman. An inspired title, I have to say. Congratulations on, on just the title itself, but the rest of the book, absolutely brilliant. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I love all that sort of stuff anyway, and uh, br- really brilliantly written and very fun and entertaining and interesting. So thank you. And thank you for taking the time out of your busy life to speak to me as well. My pleasure, Katie. Honestly, we could, as you say, we could talk for hours. Um, whether or not anyone would be wanting to listen to that, I probably doubt it by that stage. But no, it was honestly, it's been a real genuine pleasure. And um, and thank you for the lovely comments about the book. Honestly, I've been really touched by how many people have got in touch with me to say, you know what, this has brought back some memories or, oh, it's really encouraging. And, and I sort of wrote it initially with the thought of youngsters you know, reading it before, you know, to encourage them to go into the forces. But actually, I've had just as many sort of elderly folks really going, oh, my goodness, it's brought back so many memories of my time there. Or, you know, so it's, it's been lovely that it's, it's touched a lot of people of all different generations. Yeah, it was really fantastic. I'm actually going to recommend it to my husband as well, because I know he loves oh, all, all that sort of stuff as well. Um, he was completely independently uh, also considered the military, but didn't in the end. So he will love that. Anyway, thank you again for your time and uh, look forward to hearing what happens next. Thanks, Katie. Great to chat to you. Thanks for joining me. I'll be back next week with another incredible episode of Chatting to a Friend. In the meantime, please give us a follow on Instagram, Chatting to a Friend, for all the latest news. Bye-bye.